Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. Tuesday, August 31st, 2010. It's 10 p.m. in the east, 7 p.m. out west, 9 p.m. here in Texas, and I am very excited about the guy I've got on the phone. You know, we've got a lot to talk about here, so we're just going to dive right in. Uh, no second acts in American lives. Don't you dare say that to my guest tonight. He shot to prominence in the mid-90s as troubled rich kid A.J. Quartermain on General Hospital, and when he lost that job under, to say the least, turbulent circumstances, the general perception was that his career was over before it had even begun. But Cream always rises, and at the turn of the decade, he made a massive splash again, playing bona fide bad boy Deacon Sharp on The Bold and the Beautiful. And he spent the past decade portraying that character on both B&B and of late on The Young and the Restless, as well as carving out quite a niche for himself in the world of independent film. And if that's not enough, he also dabbles in stand-up comedy in his spare time, and he's just created a website which dares to advise young men on how to become 21st century gentlemen. And he's come by the buzz this evening to talk about all of this and so much more. His characters are delicious, and his talent in bringing them to life is damn evident. His name is Sean Kanan. Hey, Brandon, how are you? Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you very much. Was, what a great intro. Well, thank you very much. I've been a big fan for a long time, and it's quite a thrill to speak with you this evening. Thanks, I appreciate it. I was, when I was listening to uh, the other people that were doing the promos for your show, uh, I worked with, gosh, I worked with three or four of them. I worked with Linda Dano and Lynn Herring. And uh, I think a couple others. So, wow, impressive. So let's let's start at the beginning here. Give me the 60-second bio on Sean Kane. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where'd you go to school? Born in Cleveland, Ohio, when I was about five years old. Uh, my father uh, decided that he was going to join the family business, which was uh, a chain of retail jewelry stores, the uh, the 15th or 16th largest chain in the United States. There were about 50 stores, and we moved from Cleveland, Ohio, to Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which is uh, outside of Pittsburgh, and um, I grew up there, and when I was uh, starting my junior year of high school, I went over to boarding school, and then I went to, I started college uh, in Boston, at Boston University, studying political science, and that's pretty much when I really decided that I wanted to pursue acting, and I knew that if I was going to do it, I either had to move to uh, New York or to Los Angeles, and it just so happened that I was dating a girl who was a senior in college from Los Angeles, and when she graduated, she intended on going back to Los Angeles, and 
I moved to school early to follow her to Los Angeles, and I enrolled in UCLA to finish my political science degree. And while I was there, I booked uh, Karate Kid 3, and uh, I started working. And that's kind of how it worked. And was acting and, and performing, was that always kind of it for you? I mean, was, did you ever have any interest in doing anything else? You know, when I was, I, half of my family were doctors, uh, and my uncle is a pretty prominent plastic surgeon. He was a, a big influence on my life when I was a kid. And so I think when I was, you know, when I was really young, I would say up until the time I was probably about 12, I think I wanted to be a, a surgeon, but me and... Uh, Mathematics went by by a long time ago, so <laughs> so, so I, I decided to pursue a career in the arts. <laughs> gotcha. So you're the black sheep of the family, I guess. You know, it's funny. I, I was for a long time, and uh, my sister and I used to joke that depending when I was on TV, I was the preferred child, and uh, when I wasn't on TV, uh, I was the black sheep. Gotcha. Okay. My, parents, <laughs> my parents didn't find that very funny, but uh, don't joke about that. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I guess probably um, with, with some of my exploits, it's a pretty safe bet to say that I've been uh, somewhat of the, uh, the black sheep slash anti-hero family. You mentioned Karate Kid Three. Was that was that what you would call your big break, or was there something kind of before that 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 set you? I would, I would say that that was certainly my big break because you know obviously the uh, franchise, the Karate Kid franchise, was so well known. That, you know, I think it kind of launched me to quote-unquote, national prominence. Um, I had done a few network television shows prior to that, guest star, co-star stuff. But, yeah, really that was that was far and away, you know, the springboard for me doing bigger and better things. And isn't it great how they've rebooted it this, this summer and hooked in a whole new generation of, of fans for that whole franchise? I mean, they've started it all over again. Yeah, I think it is because I think that the new Karate Kid film, you know, I want to say reawakened, but certainly perpetuated all the nostalgia for the other one, you know, and I think, and I think that, uh, I think that the Karate Kid movies, a lot like Rocky, I mean, they're morality tales. I mean, they, oh, they sure. really, you know, they really offer something that, you know, inspiring good guy, bad guy, good guy triumphs, you know, and, and every now and then it's, it's nice to see a story that, you know, it's not multi-layered really. It's just, it's, it's simple and it's, and it's honest. And I think some of those, types of stories thematically have the most profound effect on us viscerally. You know, we, we really tend to respond to those because they, they resonate with, I think, our inherent sense as human beings of wanting good to triumph over evil. And if you, if you work hard enough, you're, you're going you're gonna to overcome. No question about it. People always love hearing and seeing stories about, you know, people working hard, beating the odds. I mean, you know, that story is going to resonate long after we're all gone. I think so too. I think it's a classic. Uh, it's a classic. You know what's funny to me, and, and kind of amazing, when you start to really think about the the I don't know the kismetic confluence of events that led to such a circumstance. If you were to make a list of the most intriguing, most compelling daytime performers of say the past two decades, uh, the resulting list would almost certainly include Steve Burton, Vanessa Marcel, Sarah Brown, Antonio Sabato, Jonathan Jackson, Sean Kanan. And, you know, you were all kids together back in the day on General Hospital. Like it was something in the water over there that brought all of you together at essentially the same time. Talk to me about being on that set in those days and being a member of that team. It was it was a very special time. You know, Steve Burton and I have kind of gone our separate ways. But, uh, you know, at that time we were, we were close, like brothers. 
it was exciting to to work with Vanessa and you know Antonio had a lot of heat around him and it's funny Antonio and I have actually worked together uh, I think several times since then we did a film together called The Chaos Factor okay and uh, I think we did something else together that I'm probably not remembering a little later on Ricky Martin came on the show sure yeah uh, you know it was just a very exciting time to be a part of General Hospital. You know, I was I was playing a character that really it was really first time I had a chance to really do some what I think was serious traumatic work, taking on the issue of you know alcoholism, et cetera, taking on the issue of you know another character that had AIDS, an interracial relationship. I mean, General Hospital really stuck its neck out there under the uh, the watch of Wendy Rich. And we dealt with some really uh, in-your-face uh, social issues. No question and about I got, it. You know, some of the scenes I'll never forget were, were with you and Steve Burton dealing with uh, Monica's cancer back when they were doing the breast cancer storyline. I mean, that was some of the most amazing stuff I've ever seen on television. Wow, thank you. Steve and I used to always say that even if AJ and Jason couldn't talk to each other, you know, Sean and Steve always could. And I, I think that the relationship that Steve and I cultivated – in those days, really, it really served us well. We were we were really able to bring, I hope, a lot of honesty and humanity to what it was that we were doing. And we were lucky to be surrounded by some very good older actors who were very open with giving us encouragement and advice. You know, Stuart Damon and uh, Leslie Charlson, you know, they were the backbone of the Quartermain family. And uh, I really didn't hesitate to talk to either of them uh, about questions I would have about going going after a scene and how I wanted to approach it. And, um, you know, I think probably Steve and I grew into being disciplined actors, but in the beginning we were, you know, we were young guys on a show dealing with a lot of the things that young guys deal with. Sure. And, uh, you know, over the course of the five years that we were on the show, I think we we started really making that transition from being young men to men. It's, it's interesting kind of growing up like that, you know, more or less on television. Obviously, I made a great number of mistakes, but, um, you know, I think we all, make, we all make mistakes as we're growing up. Mine just tended to be in the public eye because of what I do for a living. I know you went through some some very well documented troubles in your personal life, and you know I absolutely don't want to dwell on that. And and you can tell me to shut my mouth anytime you please. But but you know even though it wasn't that long ago comparatively, it was a very different world back then in terms of media coverage. I mean there was no TMZ, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, there was no internet for all intents and purposes. Certainly not to the extent that it exists and is a part of our daily reality now. That's probably a pretty lucky thing for me. And not to say that you got a free path back then, but as as someone who walked through the fire barefoot and lived to tell about it, when you look at people now like like Lindsay Lohan and Brittany and Tiger Woods, Mel Gibson, you know all these clearly troubled stars whose every breath is front page news now. What goes through your yeah. mind? Boy, was my ass lucky. That's what goes through my mind. <laughs> let me let me tell you, half the shenanigans I was pulling and never saw the light. And thank God, life in general is difficult. And I think people have that when you're on TV, that everybody's a multi-gazillionaire, and we all lay out by our swimming pool. And 
Cutlers and our Ferraris, and, you know, that's just not the case. And a lot of times the flip side of that is that actors do have lives that tend to give themselves to a lot of indulgence, you know, and I think it just comes down to trying to find that really healthy middle ground, which for me has taken me a long time to find. I mean, I certainly did a lot of stupid stuff back in those days, and God willing with age, I've learned, you know, some hard lessons. Even in the absence of the Internet and DMZ, uh, um, I feel like I, I certainly took my lumps. I don't feel like I really got over you know, I was the guy that, you know, no matter what I did, I mean, I got away with a lot of stuff, but, man, I sure did get nailed for a lot of stuff, too. So, you know, it, it all kind of came out in the wash. I'm, I, you know, I, I'm, I feel very happy to be what I consider a survivor. Absolutely. You know, it, it just it, it seems like it seems like it's totally different now. I mean, it seems like there are no secrets anymore. Period. Everybody knows everything about everybody. It does, and and I you know I think I think that whether you work in the uh, entertainment field or not, I think everybody is to uh, a, a little bit of privacy and you know a bit of a private life, and that really has gone by the wayside for most people. You know, I, I'm sure you have a thousand regrets about your GH tenure, but, you know, with 2020 hindsight and all, in a funny way, was losing that job the best thing that could have happened to you? Absolutely. If that hadn't happened, you know, I never would have landed on B&B, which to this day has been the greatest job that I've ever had. Some of the stuff that I've, I've been, you know, blessed to play as Deacon Sharp has been some of the, the, the best acting opportunities that I've ever had. You know, aside from that, on a personal note, it really forced me to look at and confront, you know, a lot of issues in my life. And um, had that not happened, I probably I wouldn't have started on the path of sort of self-exploration and, you know, self-deconstruction that certainly, I think, well, not I think, has certainly made me a much better actor and has hopefully made me a much better person. You know, you mentioned being a better actor now. I don't say this just to kiss your ass or just because you're on the phone with me right now, but I'll tell you, I watch you now, and I see unmistakable traces of of vintage Tony Geary, vintage Maurice Bernard in your performances these days. You know, A.J. wasn't exactly uh, a goody two-shoes, but he wasn't quite the bad boy either. So now that you are playing the anti-hero type, do you ever think back to that time and, and recognize whether your proximity to those guys seeped in subconsciously somehow? I just think that when we were on the show as young guys, it was very obvious that the bar was being set, and Steve and I were extremely eager to do our best to try and, you know, reach towards it. You know, Maurice and Tony set a real high mark, you know, and, and Steve and I just, we really were very conscientious about wanting to be good and wanting to bring something, you know, to our roles that was kind of above and beyond what you know, most people's general perception of of what a soap opera is all about, you know, was in our performance. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, working with those guys, too, uh, you know, you, you had to bring your A game. Damn right. They'd eat you a lot. That's how it is. I mean, acting, in a lot of ways, is an emotional, full-contact sport. You, you don't bring your A game, you're going to get eaten alive by a, a better actor. On national television. On national television, yep. Going back to work and starting completely over, did you find it difficult to get any traction again, or did you find that Hollywood has a pretty short memory in terms of stars in their past? 
No. Um, Hollywood has a pretty good memory, actually. Uh, <laughs> they have a pretty good memory, actually. Um, and I had to fight like hell. Getting on Bold and the Beautiful was a, was a coup for me. I mean, that really was terrific. You know, I uh, when I joined the cast of, of Young and the Restless, it really happened over a lunch with Paul Rausch. Um, I had really been trying to orchestrate a sit-down with myself and Paul, and through a series of mutual connections and hard work by some people on my team, Paul was gracious enough to agree to sit down and have lunch with me, and we, we talked very, very little about soap operas. I don't really think, honestly, Paul knew anything about my character, or if he did, he sure pretended he didn't. <laughs> and we really just talked like two guys. And um, I absolutely 1,000% attribute my being on The Young and the Restless to Paul Rausch and to Paul taking a chance on me and uh, going to bat for me. And, I mean, you know, as, as long as I live, that's something that I will never forget and, uh, and, and hopefully always work hard to, uh, to honor. You mentioned Paul Rouse. I mean, you've worked for some pretty strong producers over the years. You talked about Wendy Rich earlier, Brad Bell, obviously. Uh, tell me about the Paul Rouse experience. Is he as forceful and as intimidating as his reputation purports? Yes, he is. Paul's the kind of guy that I wish he was like an uncle. Um, <laughs> but, but by the same token, man, I would not want to be on Paul's bad side. So, uh, I, I, I consider myself a lucky guy that I Paul tolerates me. <laughs> you know, I you know, I think the soap streets are littered with with uh the carcasses of people who got on Paul's bad side. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I try daily not to be one. <laughs> I get a kick out of how terrified everybody is of him. And I'm not saying it's not without good reason. Okay? But I mean so I guess, I guess it's easy when you're 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 not necessarily the object of that terror being inflicted upon you. Although yeah. he has And, you know, I think as you get older, 
you hopefully, or at least I've hopefully learned to, uh, you know, look at things in a different way. And so I tend not to play those kind of parts. I think I, I do tend to play guys that are sort of a little misunderstood and a little rebellious and anti-heroic. But I think I'm a little bit like that in my life. So when did you know that, that Deacon was really going to take off and make a big splash? When Did you know immediately, or, or did it take a little bit of time to kind of get the get a handle on him? I knew right away when I started playing Deacon that I was being given something very special to do. You know, Brad Bell came up with something really special. They really gave me a tremendous amount of latitude to make the character mine. At that time, we were able to get away with a lot more stuff than I think you are now with the censors. I mean, I remember my character Smoke. We really were able to push the envelope with some of the dialogue and the sexual innuendo. And with some of the physical stuff, with the, you know, specifically, I remember the love scene I did with Catherine Kelly Lang, which that would never get on the air now. <laughs> I, I think to date it's still the, the first on-screen orgasm in daytime history. And I, I don't necessarily say that I'm proud of that, but it just goes to show, you know, where the mentality was at that point that, that the show was really willing to go to the mat and push the limit. And, yeah. and, proud to have been able to be a part of the show when it was doing stuff like that. You know, uh, B&B is one of those shows where the story moves pretty fast, and when it's over, Brad is is stunningly not afraid to pack up and move on to something else. You know, uh, were you oh, yeah. sad when that initial run on when your initial run on that show came to an end? I was sad because I no longer got to see a group of people that I care about tremendously on a pretty regular basis, and that includes you know the crew and the producers. I was sad because I was no longer getting a great weekly paycheck. I wasn't sad. But you laugh about it, but, I mean, you know, there's a reality to that, too. Sure, absolutely. You get very used to, oh, this is just how things are. And I was not sad because I had felt that it really was winding down and, you know, we played so much story. You know, it was time for a break. I'm really happy that the character was so popular that, you know, Young and the Restless saw fit to bring Deacon to Genoa City. And I just hope that I get the opportunity while I'm over there to to get involved in stories like I was involved at, with Bold and the Beautiful. Um, you know, one of the things that leaving E&B taught me was, you know, it, it helped me get hungry again as far as, you know, being an actor is a little like being a fighter. You know, when you, when you ask in the comfort of, job security for too long, you forget what it's like to be out there and be an actor hustling and looking for parts. When I left Golden the Beautiful, I went over to Italy. I did a movie in Italy, and I came back and produced a film called Hack, which actually Adrian Franz is in, and I also starred in that, and William Forsythe was in it, and Danica McKellar. You know, I, I did a lot of stuff that I didn't really have time to do while I was on Golden the Beautiful. Um, you mentioned going to Italy uh after Bold and the Beautiful, is Italy still, is, is B&B still huge in Italy? I mean, is it still the biggest thing over there? Yeah, it's still it's still uh, very big over there. It is. I, were you I actually, the streets? Were you, were you like Elvis? I mean, were, were you mobbed? You know, definitely uh, it's, it's very different than in Los Angeles. I mean, my life here in L.A., I mean, I get recognized occasionally, but I live a pretty normal, anonymous life. And in Italy, it's a different deal. Now, I also did a movie over there and did a, a lot of press and then eventually I did Dancing with the Stars over there which is the number one show so I was on wow. I was on 
live television for 15 weeks over there. So, you know, by that time, I was, I was you know, pretty well known. <laughs> wow. You know, I know that they're just across the hall from each other, but talk about the differences between Y&R and B&B in terms of everything, how it's made, how you fit in. Uh, talk about the differences. Well, are, are they radically different? B&B has undergone a big change that I'm not familiar with. I just know that they've gone through a big schedule change uh, that was not how we did it. So I can only tell you what B&B, when I did it, was like, opposed to Y&R now. Young and the Restless is an hour long, a much larger cast, much, much larger They've got two sound stages. It's just a much bigger production. Because there's so many characters, it's more difficult to acquire storyline. I mean, I was very used to having pretty much a front-burner storyline for the better part of five years sure. on Bold and the Beautiful. And, you know, right now on Young and the Restless, I'm very happy to be a part of the cast, but, you know, I am, you know, one of many. Sure. And I'm hoping that at some point, you know, they're going to give me the ball and let me carry it because I certainly know that I'll be able to score. But, you know, uh, there's a lot of people there who have probably been in line a lot longer than I have who are saying the exact same thing. So I, I probably have to, you know, I probably have to wait my turn. I mean, this is the first time I've been a reoccurring character as opposed to a contract player. That's different mm -hmm. for me. Although... It's nice because it gives me the freedom to do other things. I just signed on to, to star in an independent film called uh, Rock Barnes, which is going to be a mockumentary about a motivational speaker, and I'm playing the title character. Really, really funny film. You know, if I were a contract player, I, I don't necessarily know that I would be able to schedule um, doing the film. So, you know, that for me is, um, you know, it's a bit of a trade-off. One thing was that when we were doing Bold and the Beautiful, you know, if if we wanted to take three or four takes for a scene, we got them, generally speaking. <laughs> and now with Young and the Restless, you get one. That's it. Yeah. You get one take. <laughs> and unfortunately, that type of work environment, which is now not just with Y&R, it's pervasive in, in all of daytime sure. um, and probably a lot of nighttime because of the economy – is not the most conducive to getting the best work. It just isn't. Obviously, the best work comes from theater because you rehearse for six weeks and then, you know, you do your thing. And then film is next because you rehearse and then, you know, you, you take three or four days to shoot a scene. In daytime, you're shooting 60 pages a day. And that's not an indictment on um, the medium. I mean, when you're doing soap opera, you know, you know what you're doing. You know what you're signing up for. The flip side of that is that it acts as a bit of a gymnasium to help you develop a, a very important skill set, which is the ability to learn a great deal of dialogue very quickly. You bet. You know, memorizing is a skill set. It's not the most important thing in acting by far, but it's kind of like, you know, you hear that expression, um, money's, money's not important as long as you got it. Being able to memorize lines isn't that important as long as you can do it. <laughs> you mentioned soaps changing across the board. I mean, when you started in 93 on GH, and, you know, you started on a show that at that time was ferociously dedicated at any cost to putting out quality work on a daily basis. Uh, right. Talk about talk about how things have changed for you personally in terms of the way you work from then to now. Well, I'll tell you one thing that's changed. I have 17 years more of life experience. And in the amount of time that 
started doing General Hospital, I've, you know, I've been married and divorced. I've, I've had a child. I've traveled the world. I've, you know, I've had numerous wonderful and painful experiences, all of which give me a reservoir of emotions to draw on and bring to my work. So I, I think that's something that's definitely changed. You know, I've had the opportunity to work with some really terrific actors. I've done a lot of theater. I've done probably, you know, 12 films since then. And, and you know, every time you do something, you're improving. I mean, it's like playing tennis with a better tennis player. You're working now with Michelle Stafford, which was something that was kind of teased in your in your first Y&R arc, but they never really went there in the way that many of us thought they should have, uh, you know, given the immediately evident sparks that flew between the two of you. Uh, how much fun is she to work with? She's great. I think Michelle and I actually, whether she knows it or not, work in a very similar way. We really try and use what's in the moment, what the other actors, you know, bring to the table and react from it. Michelle definitely pushes me to do my best work, and I, I like to think that I push her. I've wanted to work with Michelle for a long time. I certainly don't think that initially the scenes with Phyllis and Deacon were written necessarily to be the touchstone for uh, an attraction. I think that, you know, Phyllis was supposed to be, you know, the protective mother of Daniel, and Deacon was sort of the villainous guy that really was doing something to protect his son, although no one knew it. And, you know, I, I like to always explore the sexual chemistry in scenes with women because I think that in life we do that. You know, when I say explore sexual chemistry, it doesn't always refer to trying to get somebody in bed, but I think that, you know, um, a lot of people, and I think for better or for worse, I'm one of them, I, I tend to engage people on that level. And, uh, you know, Michelle receptive to, towards reacting towards that, and, you know, we were able to sort of create something on screen that, you know, the writers, uh, you know, Maria Bell picked up on and decided to bring me back and, and write for it. So we'll see how that, you know, how that manifests. I mean, uh, you know, right now it just sort of seems like Phyllis and Deacon are playing around with this very physical, you know, sort of sexual relationship that is not rooted at all in, in emotion. It'll be interesting to see if, you know, if it deepens, and, and they start to relate to each other on uh, an emotional level. I mean, I think that if they have this much chemistry on a physical level, if the emotional component comes into play, then it could be positively combustible. You've become quite a player in the independent film world, which is pretty incredible given the, the long-time prejudice that Hollywood has always kind of shown toward people in the soap world. How have you managed to, to transcend that stigma, or has that stigma kind of disappeared? No, it absolutely has not disappeared. It prevalent more now than ever. Really? Um, yeah, it is. However, I fight like hell against it. I am constantly trying to um, get involved with independent film projects. did a great one last September. flew to New York to do this film called Abracadabra that uh, Al Pacino's daughter, Julie Pacino, directed. The film went on to go to Cannes and just screened out here in Hollywood at the Holly Shorts Film Festival. And, uh, I, you know, I, I played a guy that was absolutely nothing like myself. I had, you know, long hair extensions and tattoos and sort of this creepy southern accent. And, I mean, I'm always trying to, you know, push myself and, and push the industry's perception of who I am and push my perception of who I am, you know what I mean? To get out of my comfort zone absolutely. and do things that, I, you know, I, that I'm not necessarily ostensibly sure that I can pull off. 
are you happy uh, kind of juggling television and film forever, or do you want to move toward the film world eventually? I mean, what's the what's the long term plan for this? Well, yeah, I mean, sure, I'd be lying if I said my ideal career wouldn't be that I do four films a year, getting paid five million dollars a year, shooting with you know in fabulous locations with beautiful women. I want to be George Clooney, but you know what? In in the absence of that, being Sean Kane it ain't too bad. Know what I mean? I, I, I've got my good days and my bad days. But I'm, I'm, I'm a I'm a pretty lucky guy, you know. I I I'm, I'm, I've got a lot of gratitude for what's been given to me, especially in the face of you know my abject attempts sometimes to burn the house down. So uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm pretty lucky. You know, you mentioned you mentioned doing comedy. I'm fascinated by the fact that you're dabbling in stand-up comedy because, and I know that this is judging books by covers, but you know, just by the characters you play and by your on-screen persona. You don't seem like the type at all. How did this come about? I actually started doing stand-up when I was like 15. Really? And, uh, yeah. I have no I idea. I would have never guessed that, ever. Yeah, when I was 16, I took my parents' car, went to the boardwalk in Atlantic City, doing um, stand-up on the boardwalk and then local comedy clubs around uh, you know, where I grew up. And off and on throughout my life, I've done it. I uh, went to uh, Bosnia and Kosovo to go entertain the troops with USO. I mean, it's just something I've always loved doing. Wow. I, I, I went to go see uh, a stand-up show when I was like 13. I snuck in, and I was just like, wow. I was spellbound by the ability of these guys to, uh, to to hold the audience in their hand and make them laugh with just their words. And I was like, wow, that's, that's for me. You know, I, I love doing it. I really do. I'm going to be uh, performing at the Looney Bin in Staten Island uh, on... September 25th. That's what we call in the business a gratuitous plug. So, <laughs> hey, that's what my show is this for. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, I just think being in the world at daytime, too, I mean, just writes so much comedy, you know. I mean, it's starting with being in General Hospital, man. I mean, it's like in a town where there's 35 doctors to everyone's patients. And, I mean, just some of the, you know, some of the crap that they write in, in daytime just begs, you know, for somebody to deal with it in stand-up. So um, I hope people will come out and see my show. And, uh, yeah, no, I know. It's funny. A lot of people are like, yeah, I just really don't see it being funny. I, I suppose it's yeah. all my friends. They'd say, oh, Sean's very funny. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. You know, th- this career that you've constructed over the past two decades, you've managed to work reasonably consistently in a very tough business. And, you know, I, I know there's always more. There's always the the woulda, coulda, shoulda game that we all play regardless of what it is that we do with our lives. But uh, are you are you more or less happy with the arc of your career, with the path that you've traveled down? I mean, you've literally done a little bit of everything, and that's, that's pretty exciting for, for you know, the, the life of an actor, I would think. You know, I'm very happy about that part. I, I think that, you know, there's, there's this woman named Agnes DeMille who was involved with the theater, and she she talked about, you know, in the arts, there's a divine sense of dissatisfaction. And I, I think I I suffer from that. I I am always trying to push myself to do more and to experience more. I think sometimes that breeds uh, some dissatisfaction on my part. But every now and then, you know, you, you have a moment where you just feel sort of uh, – in sync with the universe and, and you know, that, that, that everything is right in the world of, you know, 
entertaining for that moment with, with your career. Um, and it's those little moments of grace that appear so infrequently yet make it really worthwhile. Talk to me about the 21st Century Gentleman. I've poked around the website a little bit, and it's great fun. It's very interesting. Tell me how, how this idea came to you and where, and where people can find it. The website is called the 21stCenturyGentleman.com. It's the, and the number 21SE21stCenturyGentleman.com. It started because I, I love to cook, and a lot of my friends for years have been asking me to open a restaurant and to uh, write a cookbook. So I started outlining a cookbook called The 21st Century Gentleman, uh, The Art of Entertaining and Cooking with Sean Kanan. And I decided that while I was writing the book, I wanted to put a blog site up to sort of precede the book. And I realized, you know, there's this, there's this absence in men's world for mentors. Like, you know, I think a lot of women have uh, uh, sort of some go-to people like Oprah and, and Martha Ray, or, uh, Rachel Ray and, um, you know, a lot of other people that give, especially young girls, an idea of how to do a lot of things. And I think men have been relegated to the buffoons that um, are, are, you know, the the male figures in sitcoms, which are basically overgrown children, and men in beer ads who are basically concerned with, you know, maintaining their beer stash. And uh, most guys that I know, they really aren't like that. I mean, you know, guys that I know and that are my friends are interested in having you know, discussions about relationships and, and, and life, and they're not just about football and beer, you know, but I think there's a lot of stuff that guys maybe haven't had the opportunity to learn and that, you know, I, I've, I've been cooking for years. I've been fortunate enough to, you know, travel the world and, and learn to speak another language. And, you know, I, I just sort of wanted to offer um, some of what has been taught to me and that I've learned through trial and error to, uh, to the other guys out there. So that's kind of how it started. Have you have you had a chance to look at the site? Yes, I have. I've, I've poked around some of the blogs, and and most of it is written by you. Yes, I mean you're you're it's pretty yeah. much a one man band here. It is, and I like it. You know, it's kind of cathartic for me too to to write some of this stuff and uh, see what people's responses are. And it's very interesting and very smart. And and you know, I mean, it, it's it's funny because you know you play some of these bad boy characters on TV, and and it's funny to hear you say you like to cook, you like to you know. You like to you like to be a gentleman in your real life, even though you know some of the characters you play are are a little darker than that. It's 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 an interesting juxtaposition, an interesting contrast. Yeah, you know, I just I think that being a gentleman doesn't mean that you have to compromise your sense of masculinity. And you know, I think that getting in touch with parts of our personality that you know allow us to, to cook and you know, pay attention to detail and things like that. I don't I don't think that that really feminizes men either, but we've sort of been taught that, well, if you, if, you, if you cook or if you do this or that, that's kind of girly, and, you know, guys have developed this really sort of skewed perception of what it is to be a, a well-rounded renaissance guy, and a lot of it has been a combination of just the, the pummeling that the male persona has taken, for instance, you know, in a lot of television specifically sitcoms, where men are basically these overgrown children that aren't able to do anything unless their wives sort of you know, tell them what to do. And, I mean, that's not how most guys are. And, and I just kind of felt like, wow, that's a really huge social albatross for guys to carry around their necks and to be relegated 
to the role of being inept. And, you know, I think Queer Eye for the Straight Guy did a lot of good things and brought up a lot of good points, but for me it always came at the expense of making the guys feel like idiots and incompetent yeah. while, they were, while they were ridiculed by the Fab Five. Uh-huh. And, and this, is nothing against, this is nothing against, you know, the guys who did Queer Eye for the Straight Guy because I think they, they, they brought a lot of really good stuff to the table. I'm just trying to take it and make it, I don't want to say more palatable, but just present it in a different way. And a lot of times, you know, you can hear the same message over and over again, and it depends on how it's presented, whether or not you hear it. You know what I'm saying? You can, you can have a really good message presented to you, but if the wrapping paper isn't attractive to you, you're not going to open the gift. And I'm just hoping that, hey, I'm just a guy trying to present some, some stuff that was taught to me in a way that hopefully some guys will like. I definitely wrote this blog for guys, but you know, much in the same way that I think guys have a guilty pleasure of occasionally reading women's magazines like Cosmo, I think if women go to this blog, it's going to give them a front row seat and demystify and pull back the curtain, hopefully, of the male psyche. So Fantastic. This, this blog is every bit as much for women as it is for men. And I'm frankly trying to, I guess, start a bit of a movement here. Um, where we start looking at each other uh, in a different way. And I, and I encourage women to send the men in their lives to this blog, whether it be a young guy going off to college or a husband who maybe has forgotten a little bit what it's like to, to treat his wife like the significant other. You know, there's something that I'm going to be doing an article on, which is think like a single guy even if you're not. It's basically, you know, somewhere along the line when we get in a monogamous relationship, over the course of time, unfortunately, sometimes familiarity breeds contempt, or if not contempt, it at least breeds um, ennui and boredom, right? And I think, you know, when, when we're single and we're pursuing somebody, that's the time that we're the most attentive. That's the time that we're the most focused on their needs and listening to what it is that they have to say, and that's when we really get to know the other person. So if you can keep that mindset, of a single guy, even if you're not, um, I, I think it's going to hopefully reinvigorate your relationship. And I hope that I'm the guy that's able to do that. You know, and, and in doing this, for me, it keeps me on point myself. You know, it, sure. it forces me to confront these issues because I can't very well espouse these things to other guys unless I'm kind of rocking it in my life. And you know something? I really hope that, you know, look, I'm not selling anything here right now. It's free to go to the blog. The book that I have that I'm, I'm working on is not even finished, so uh, I, I'm not here trying to hawk anything. I'm just doing Absolutely. this because I want to do it. So I hope, really, all of your listeners will just take two minutes and go to the blog. Like I said before, it's www.21stcenturygentleman.com and 21st is 21SD. And just take a look and read, and if you hate it, write me a letter, and if you like it, write me a letter, and if you've got some suggestions or things you'd like to see, I'd love to hear your input. It's great fun and, and very interesting, and, and like you said, you know, the, on, the, on the feminine side, on the female side, people have, uh, you know, Martha Stewart and Oprah and Rachel Ray, and they have figured out, you know, very brilliantly how to package their messages to get them across to the widest to the widest uh, swath of, of, of their audience, and I think that you are on the right path in terms of doing something like that for the masculine side. 
I, I hope so. I, I hope that I'll, I'll be given the opportunity to do that. I'm having a lot of fun writing the blog. Uh, we'll be putting some new stuff up in the next couple days. And you know, every couple days I'm trying to put some new information up there. And I'm, I'm actually getting a lot of ideas from the readers because apparently it's, some of the articles are starting to stimulate some discussion. And that's the thing. If I'm able to stimulate some discussion, especially between husbands and wives or you know, guys and their girls or girls and their guys, then I think I'm achieving what it is that I set out to do. I mean, I'm really trying to do what I always try and do in my life, which is, you know, take good guys and make them great guys. Because I don't believe that most guys are like these bumbling idiots who are clueless. I think most guys, you know, have a clue, and they want to be able to do a lot of this stuff and be facile with this stuff, but no one's taking the time to teach them how. So hopefully that's where I'm able to come in. So what's on the horizon for Sean Kane and this this current YNR run? Is it is it an indefinite one, or, or what are we looking at in terms of the soap? You know, it's open ended. I mean, like I said, I'm not a contract player. You know, my hope is that they're going to really um, provide me with a good storyline that's going to allow me to sink my teeth into it. And um, you know, if they do that, I hope that I stay a very long time. Because I'm not a contract player, I mean, I am out there looking for other opportunities. Uh, I will be doing this uh, this short film, which I'm very – I'm sorry, it's not a short film, this, this independent film, which I'm very excited about. I'm not sure what's what's in store for me. That's part of the uh, the excitement. One thing I'd really like to do eventually, certainly before I'm, I would say, within the next several years, I would very much like to uh, do something on Broadway. Uh, that's oh. something that I've wanted for, for quite a while. I've come close a couple times to being able to – you know, work that out with my schedule, but at some point, I really would like to, you know, I, I find the idea of, of doing uh, uh, something on Broadway uh, and living in New York for a while extremely romantic. That that idea just, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm very enamored with, with that idea, so hopefully that will become a reality. And uh, I'm going to continue writing this blog, and, um, you know, I've got some other literary projects working on my book right now, so... I've got my hands full. Terrific. And, and, and I have an, and I have a nine-year-old. That's that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's Which a, is a job in and of itself. Oh, oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> daily. Um, but she is a she's my daughter is terrific. I learn from her every day, and uh, I'll tell you, that kid, that kid makes me laugh and brings so much joy to my life. That uh, you know that that's really what it's about for me. That's terrific. Hey, listen, my friend, speaking of a significant woman in my life, um, I have one who was actually nice enough to make me dinner tonight, and uh, I am supposed to be there at 9.30, so if I if I say goodbye, I hope you'll forgive me, but I really, Brandon, I really enjoyed speaking with you. I want to thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. Oh, let me tell you something. It's been, it's been the greatest thrill. I mean, I've been a big fan of yours for longer than either of us would care to remember, I think, and, and this was a great thrill speaking to you this evening as well. Well, you know what? I, I really appreciate it, and you have my email, and I hope you'll stay in touch and, and not be a stranger. And I just want to sure. I just want to thank you so much to your your audience for giving me the time to uh, to talk. And I, I hope I didn't blather on too much, but not at all. Brandon, thank you so much. Okay, take care. Of yourself. Hey, before I let before I let you go, could I get you to do a promo for my show? Sure. What do you want to do? As long as it includes the word Sean Kanan and Brandon's buzz, anything else you say is totally up to you. Hi, I'm Sean Kanan. Wait, Deacon Sharp on The Young and the Restless. I can't even begin to fathom how this guy has got his own show. 
I mean, Brandon's buzz. You got to listen to this guy to believe some of the stuff that comes out of his mouth. Anyway, I had a great time talking to you, Brandon. You're the best. I hope I get the chance to do your show again. I'm just teasing you. It's a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much, sir. Brandon, take care of yourself. I appreciate it. The fantastic Sean Kane and everybody on Brandon's Buzz. Brandon's Buzz in the can for August 30th, 2010. Uh, if you're listening to the show, you already know how to find it, but in case you don't, three places online, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. That really is home base for this show. It's, it really is mission control. From there, you can listen to the show. You can download previous episodes of the show. Uh, you can send, you can leave, uh, leave comments, send emails. It really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me online at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. You click that button, it takes you to a full and complete radio archive of every episode of this show. This is episode number 66. This and all previous 65 are available in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com. You can also find me on iTunes. I'm on iTunes, guys. Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on my logo. From there, you can download individual old episodes of the show as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the Music Store. So uh, I'm all over the Internet. I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on iTunes. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and something will pop up that points you in my direction. And I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me, and I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check it hey out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Better when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt.